0: Welcome to Coming Along Nicely, We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Childhood of a young boy named Timothy Nicely. This sense of
1: fight or flight kicks in like you need to escape from an emergency, and I'm realizing that that wasn't right, but maybe there's something better. The expectation is to do both
0: actions, but also you can't do both actions. School of thought where people love to hate them. Am I making sense? All right. So I started new classes this week. Um, I started officially my classes in marriage or just family therapy. Not marriage and family, but just family therapy, as well as like assessment and diagnosis. No. Assessment for diagnosis in counseling. Assessment. We'll just call it assessment. <laughs> um, so the reading this week has been just a lot of history on the movement that is, like, family therapy, which I guess really started gaining tractions back in, like, the 1920s. Like, of course, the book makes the argument, like, we've been doing family therapy for as long as humans have been alive. But officially, you know, it started becoming a thing in, like, the 1920s with these people. Um, and it's, you know, it's an interesting read. Um, there wasn't, I feel like first weeks for classes like this, uh, uh a series on assessment, it's going to be a great, great for the listeners. Uh, but there was one thing I thought was interesting that we might both be able to kind of talk to a little bit. Um, and it's this theory from back in the 19, 1950s, um, a guy named Gregory Batterson, Um, was pioneering kind of what would become a lot of like the marriage and family movement. And he came up with this idea. um, It's a theory for dysfunctional communication inside a family unit called a double bind. Have you ever heard of a double bind before? Uh, I've heard of it, but you'll probably need to explain it. Okay, so this theory, the double bind theory, states that – Two seemingly contradictory or different messages may exist on different levels or be be communicated on different levels and will cause confusion um, at the minor end. But he was proposing might also lead to schizophrenic behavior, (laughs) which is great um, on the part of some individuals. So what a double bind is – is it's, it, it has to be a contradictory message that a family unit is communicating. Um, the example they give in the book is like, act boldly and be careful. Um, So it's this idea that, you know, there's this expectation on you to act boldly and be courageous, but then also to be careful and cautious and think things through. And that kind of... Double bind, that double expectation might create behavior that is erratic in both of those areas. Like you might erratically be bold and then erratically be careful. Uh, You might fully commit to one and not commit to another, which might seem okay, except for the fact that in this family unit where this is stressed, you can't just do one. The expectation is to do both. So that creates discomfort in the family system. Um, Or you might – it might lead to like essentially decision paralysis or like this stressful behavioral paralysis where because these things are contradictory, being bold and being careful are contradictory. Like it creates this this – it's just best said stressful <laughs> paralysis where you can't do either so you end up not doing anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So is that – is a double bind something that is explicitly stated always or is it just like a feeling in the air like, hey, I just picked up that this is what I'm supposed to do? And also when you say a family unit, does that mean like are, – are we really talking about parents to kids or is it like the the whole family unit is – like carrying this, this thing. Hmm. I, it doesn't say specifically
0: parents to kids. That's where my mind went at first. When I read this yesterday um, was parents to kids, but you know, as, as family units grow older, like, I feel like those roles can also change. Yeah. Like I think older children could apply this to their parents. I think, you know, you might have some family units where an aunt or uncle lives in the house. Um, So I think that's why I expressed it as a family unit. um, Because I think the most common example could be parent to child, but I don't think that is the whole example. And I also, I wanted to go ahead. I wanted to get this guy's research um, because I wanted to go back and read about this theory just to see how it applies in other areas of life. Like if there's other areas where this, where this sort of idea comes through, like, especially in, and I know I go to this a lot, but especially in like a multimedia age where like messages are constantly communicated to us and different expectations are constantly communicated to us. Like what that does for our own individual decision-making process. If we're, if we're in the process of constantly hearing these double binds, which might also be fun just to hear, to hear other examples of double binds, which I guess I could look up, but well, I'm like trying a- to think of my own off the top of my head, I've heard huh. of that. Sorry. My
1: YouTube just played. <laughs> I, uh, I've heard of the expression before double blind or excuse me, double bind. And I can almost guarantee it wasn't, in the context of like family therapy. So it's probably one of those things that became popularized. Like that's where the term comes from, but it, it came to be used in other areas. Okay. Here's, here's an example of one.
0: Um, I don't know if this is a great one, but a mother giving her child the message to be spontaneous But then when the child acts spontaneously, he's not acting spontaneous because he's following the mother's direction. Like, it's a no-win situation. Mm. I think the no-win situations are the models where maybe schizophrenic behavior might develop. Um,
1: Let me see here. Or it's maybe presented as – like, here's
0: another one. Telling a child that you love them. While at the same time turning away in disgust or inflicting uh, corporeal punishment as a discipline. Um, I'm trying to find just a list of good examples. I found an interesting double bind response like a list of 12 responses to a double bind, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. It's on a scale of one to 12, but it ranges from like staying neutral or mildly positive, never arguing, defending or ignoring. But like up on the top of that scale, like scale 12, you've got like this, this sense of fight or flight kicks in. Like you need to escape from an emergency. You've got like being shocked silence. Like you're baffled. You have no words. Um, speaking distractedly or off the wall, like making no eye contact, kind of just looking around the room. Oh, I'm not quite sure. Like, I think those are where some of the like more schizophrenic stuff might start to kick in uh, or at least appear schizophrenic.
1: Yeah, this just according to like the Wikipedia page. uh, Is saying it can even be like a form of coercion. It can be used for that Hmm. purpose. Or I guess what it's saying is that, and and maybe I'm asking this as a question to you, like what makes it a double bind is that either option you choose, you are, uh, you're messing up or you're losing or like, there's no winning. Like these things aren't presented as things that here's two things you can balance. It's presented as, do both, but you can't fully do both. Oh, I I, I think mean, I guess I'm this, this this.
0: Well, I think I think that is a correct interpretation. The idea that like, the expectation is to do both actions, but also you can't do both actions. And I think that that could be used coercively, especially with this information I just found. Sorry, I'm actively researching this as we're going through the the episode. Um, So in what I just found on like a CBM or cognitive behavioral management, like institute site, is that some other parts of a double bind is there's some sort of negative. Think of it as an equation. There's two people. This is a repeated experience. There is some sort of negative experience and then there is a second like experience that conflicts with the first but it's specifically on a more abstract level um so wait and it kind of prohibits the second thing from happening so so here's some different examples um like son says hey can we go to the park and play soccer father says what a beautiful day for working in the garden so there's Instead of just like a no, it's almost – I guess pop culture might call this like gaslighting or something like that um, where it's the idea of like, hey, let's go to the park and play soccer. Well, it's such a beautiful day for working in the garden. Hey, we've – like here's another one. We've always gotten along so well. Yes, I've always loved you. Like so now we're going from the idea of getting along well to the idea of love. And like those things aren't necessarily hand in hand. Getting along well – like has to do with more things than just love. Love is more abstract love. Like you can love someone, whether you get along with them well or not, but it creates these weird internal double bind situations. Well, I guess to love someone, I have to get along well, but if we're not getting along well, does that mean that this person like that? I love this person. It creates these weird ping pong. Like. Like. Interpretations of things. Am I making sense? I think so.
1: Like the more it's not just, it's not just two very concrete things that are being presented, is what I think you're saying. So it's not, it's not do the laundry and cook dinner. It's brush your teeth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's at least one of them is more abstract, which kind of allows the cover for. There to be some ambiguity and some vagueness that that you know in the example uh you gave like well it's a beautiful day for gardening that's like vague enough that you kind of pick up on what they're saying but also they never come out and say it is that kind of right mm, mm-hmm. at least yep. at least in the yeah talking about the abstract element of it i i looked up because when you first were giving the definition. I was thinking, well this sounds a lot like a Catch-22, which is something oh. we talked about on one episode of the podcast. And uh I do think like I just saw at the bottom of the Wikipedia page, I was right, it does say see also Catch-22. Catch-22 is a tiny bit different, but it's interesting that we uh it's interesting that those are related since we've talked about that before. Interesting.
0: So, even the idea of the catch, if I'm remembering the book correctly, in the book Catch 22, the catch 22 of the book was by wanting to go home, you're confirming this is a wartime scenario. And by wanting to go home, you're confirming that you're sane so that. So that's proof that you won't be sent home. But once you start to go insane, you won't want to go home. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that's that's pretty much
1: it. the The way I'd say it is that you can only get sent home in the book. You can only get sent home if you're insane. And the fact that you want to go home, like you said, proves that you're sane. So... Ever wanting to go home invalidates that you ever could. So it it kind of isn't th- with this one. It isn't presented as two contradictory things. It's presented as two options, but you only really have access to the one option. It kind of is a little bit more like I'm putting this on you. Like, no, you, you said you want to go home. So right there, you just proved that you're not insane. It kind of puts it a little bit more on the here than the, the speaker, or then it just being like fully abstract. I think. Hmm.
0: Interesting, because I think I'm, I'm reading this as we're talking as well, and a lot of the double bind relationship is that similar, like. I know that I'm not using this phrase correctly, but it's that similar, like, double speak where your words don't match up with your expectations or your actions. So, like, and that can create difficulty for the listener. Like, and even more, I think this is what's interesting. It creates more difficulty than I think we realize in our maybe specifically very busy American culture. Um, so the the idea, some more examples that they were phrasing was, like, someone who says, like, oh, I would be so happy to help you, but I've got a headache. Um, Like, you say, like, oh, yes, like, I want to help you, but you have, like, a reason to get out of it. That versus someone who just says, like, no, I can't help you. Like, given enough time like and once again these responses are being received a ton it's not just that if you say this once you're going to give someone a schizophrenic break it's when someone is consistently led to believe like two things so it it's it's way easier for us to unpack hey this person is just unwilling to help than it is for us to, in our mind, continually picture a person as wanting to be so, so helpful to us, but never having the time to do so because of whatever reason, like that can create a level of emotional stress and a level of difficulty interpreting the world, especially I think for young individuals, that that can start to create like, uh, Schizophrenia is what this says, but I could also see some amount of personality disorder through like adopting similar behavior. Like the article I'm reading goes on to talk about borderline personality disorder. I haven't gotten to the point of reading it, so I can't quote it correctly and say that this is like absolute truth. But, you know, borderline personality disorder is that like extreme push and pull of like drawing someone in very close and then pushing someone away. Like they're like an enemy to you. And I can see why double binds or like catch 22s could create that type of extreme push and pull because normalcy is kind of erased. Like it's not just, Hey, I can't help you. It's like, Hey, you've got to know that I really want to help you, but I can't cause I have, I have a headache. And that leads to this weird internal processing in our minds of people really care about me. They just can't help me. What is care? Is care helping? Is care not helping? And the mental gymnastics we have to do to navigate through all those things creates this weirdness Like what happens then when someone just truly genuinely helps us? Like we get old, we get to the place where we're at a job and we just meet someone or maybe you meet a significant other who does just always want to help you. That can create so much distress that it's uncomfortable. Do you then push that person away? Because that person is now an example of how your neat and tidy life of, of, um, Making things that don't mix, mix. I'm trying to think of a better way of saying it. Maybe you can help me with your English degree. But this individual who has made these polar opposites mixed together, they've effectively mixed oil and water and found a mental system that works to make that make sense in their mind. Now their whole life is falling apart because they found someone who has a headache but wants to help them. And that kind of destroys the whole system can create it kind of like pops the, the the neurotic thought bubble and you have to redo your whole entire system of like understanding the world
1: which is not an easy thing to do yeah well i think so i think what is making more sense to me as you were talking about it is that so when you first gave the definition. Of a a double bind, I was thinking in my head, like, well, that's just that's just a a contradiction. Like and humans, we are contradictions and we say contradictions all the time. So I was like, how is that a thing that's going to lead to how how are you going to classify that as a double bind and say that's going to lead to like schizophrenia or whatever? But you're talking about I think you even said like a double bind relationship. Where this is like a repeated exposure to like, you give the example of the person wants to help, but they have a headache, but that just happening one time isn't necessarily like going to make or break somebody it's being in that relationship. And that is like the way the relationship operates. And then over time that gets compounded. And then that's where like you said, You've built your whole, your whole mental uh, processing of of relationships through th- the way that that relationship worked, and then that relationship worked, and then yeah, you go to another one, and it's like, whoa, this is totally, totally different. That that makes sense to me. It's not like a single paradox. No. No, no, no. It's not like you're talking to an AI
0: in an old sci-fi movie and you give them like a paradox and they just break down. It's the consistency of it. Gotcha. It's like growing. It's growing up in a situation or even like growing up being in a situation where those contradictions happen and are cemented and are given so many times that it that you have to choose to accept that the paradoxes aren't paradoxical in order to just make it for the day.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, like,
0: normally, you, you might be able to say, like, if you just meet someone in passing, and they're like, like, oh, yeah, hey, I've really had a great time talking to you. But they say it like that and they're looking outside the window and they're checking their watch. And it's just a friend you haven't seen in like 20 years and you meet at a coffee shop and they've got that like, I want to get out of here vibe. And you're like, hey, well, it was great to see you. And they're like, yeah, it was really great to see you. But they're checking their watch. That That's technically a double bind. But after that interaction, you probably just be like, well, I guess they didn't really enjoy seeing me. Oh, well. But imagine like growing up or being in a situation where you're getting that all the time. Right. Like you're getting an individual who always says, hey, I really care about you, but they're consistently not giving you the time of day. Like. That can create weird double bind situations working with students um, for so long, especially like. Like middle school students and some like high school students, uh, this gets really sticky when it comes to relationships And I think this, we would call it like gaslighting in relationships, but that idea of someone like the girl who's trying to figure out how much she cares for somebody and the guy only cares whenever the girl starts talking about breakups. Mm. Like it's the double bind of, well, he says he really cares about me, but he's not showing it in any of his actions. Does he care for me or not? Especially in light of me having to make a very difficult decision of breaking up with this person or not, I'm in this double bind of he cares for me, but he doesn't show it. And you eventually get to the point of accepting that as truth. And whenever that goes to unravel, it's almost more uncomfortable to unravel the accepted truth because of how much you balance on that than it is to. Accept those two things as being
1: incongruent and it
0: being false.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like the moment that person goes to leave, they're going to start getting all the things they want, which is going to seem to invalidate their decision to leave. And so that's where you get the uh, not lose, lose, but it's like you lose either way. You feel like you're going to lose out either way with either option. Yep. Huh. Well, now I know. Double Bind. Double Binds. <laughs> um, so should I jump into mine?
0: Sure. Yeah, that's all I have. I was thinking that talking about Double Binds would take me two minutes and then we'd be done. So I'm glad we were able to get more than two minutes out of that.
1: Well, that's, that's the way it goes. I always, I feel like a lot of times I'll say, this might be a real short one. And then I've learned just not to say that because... It never ends up being being true. But if there is one that's going to be a short one, it might be it might be this one for me uh, because I am on spring break. So last week you were this week I am. But the last class before uh, the last class on the last day before I took off, I was talking with my professor, my advisor about something. It's for that like research internship that independent study I'm doing and we were talking about the I guess you would call it the form of writing or the genre or whatever it would be but we're kind of talking about um confessions as a writing form so, as in, like you know, Augustine's Confessions—you probably read that, right, at some point.
0: Yeah, where it's kind of like, like how it's testimonial,
1: almost. Yeah, yeah. He. It's been a while since I read it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick it up from the library when I head back. But from what I remember, I have
0: a copy of it, you can just use my copy.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um but from what i remember i think that he starts every every like chap so every chapter is kind of like a prayer or kind of like you know today we might we've seen books where it's like every page or every chapter or whatever is like a journal entry it was kind of like that very much like bearing your soul uh or or maybe kind of like psalms in the bible where it's like very much just a a bare approach of like, here's what is in my heart. And he might even have, he might even have started them with, started every chapter with like a literal prayer or a literal scripture from the Psalms. But he would then, you know, kind of get into telling these stories or these like kind of chapters, these anecdotes about from his life and kind of process through them. And so there were. Th- there were. Like reading them. It's not quite. A journal. Or a diary. Where you would get the feeling like. This is just this person's. Deepest thoughts. It In being a confession. There is an element where like. I can pick up. Augustine's. and And get something out of them. And like he was trying to. Communicate points and messages so there's a little bit of a distinction there and what i was trying to figure out with my professor even is the distinction between between like confessions and like a memoir and so that's kind of what we were talking through i've pretty much got this writing project which i've alluded to multiple times um, on different episodes and I'm just struggling with what the format is and I've come back to that a few times with him because I I knew like if I wrote down the idea that I had on the first day of this semester it kind of sounded like a memoir and I was like well I don't want to do that so I kind of went fully in the Opposite direction, kind of to the other extreme, which was this like well-researched paper. Yes. Like a book with a bunch of footnotes and so on, so forth. And it still could be that. But then it felt a little bit like if I'm gonna make if I'm gonna make the ideas I was researching impersonal and not about me, not about my life. Then I kind of got to this point of like, well, who am I to say any of this? Like, it's not my, it's not my expertise. And so I kind of brought to him, I was like, I think this needs to be somewhat personal. Uh, Not personal, meaning like, you know, it has to be like intimate details of my life, but personal in the sense of like, this is what I feel like I've picked up on through my life you know like it's not going to be a thesis paper that's like purely objective and purely academic or whatever and so anyway he brought up the idea of like personal criticism which i need to look more into but he also brought up the idea of the confessions and so i need to read uh i want to read augustine's i want to read some more some more Modern examples of it as well, but I'm thinking that might be more of the direction I go. So I've I've got more I could say, but I'll I'll pause there. If you have any thoughts or questions, or not? Hmm. Well,
0: no, I was thinking how I think you're right in saying that you don't want this paper to be like too academic, because then I feel like for your topic which if I'm correct, is this topic of like, what is character might seem too cold. But if you come out of the gate too personal and too memoiry, It's like, OK, this is all in my perspective, what character is, but there's so many different perspectives. Like, how can you make people say that your perspective of character is the right one? So you've got to find a way of striking that balance. Um, which sounds very tough from what I can remember of confessions though a lot of confessions seems very memoiry. not like exactly memoiry, but like, hey, this is what was going on in my life, and this is what I did, and this is what I learned and in my youth, I did this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: yeah, yeah, it's I've got like a complicated relationship with it because and i'm not the only person who feels this way like there's a whole there's a whole kind of discourse and school of thought about memoirs where people really love to hate them and i kind of get why like i kind of agree i think some people can be extreme with it but for you or for anybody listening a memoir is generally like taking moments of the writer's life Or chapters of their life. And you kind of write about it. You kind of tell their story. And from it. You pull. And here's what this means. Like here's what I. Here's what I came to realize. Here's what. uh, What this shows about. About life. And the universe and so on. And I think that memoirs can be cool. With like very notable people. Like when you have a you know former presidents write them or like i don't know if lebron james has written one but like that would be a cool book to read about lebron james's life and you know so on and so forth the thing about memoirs is that with it being about a person's life a like most people's lives are i don't mean this i'm lumping myself in with this like most people's lives are pretty common You know, like most people don't need to write a book about themselves. And that's kind of how I feel about myself. B, they can be kind of narcissistic, which kind of ties into the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things are true. And that's sort of the discourse about them. But that being said, it's kind of one of those things where, like, once one person makes a good observation, that, like, hey, maybe memoirs are a little bit narcissistic. Then it's, like, anything that even closely resembles that, we're just going to, like, dunk on and, like, hate on it. So, like, anything that uses, mm. like, the pronoun I. Like, oh, well, that's narcissistic because that's, well, it's like, no, that's that's not really how that works. Like, yes. You brought up a good point, but let's not apply that to every single book in the universe. And so anyway, that's kind of that's kind of the idea about memoirs. And even when I write for the Substack, I'll use a lot of personal examples, and I will tell stories from my life and so on and so forth. But I don't think that I'm writing – like, if I tell a story from my life, it's to illustrate a point. It's not really the same thing as saying, like, well, let me tell you about the, chi- the childhood of a young boy named Timothy Nisley and how, how meaningful it was. Like, it's not that. That is more like a memoir. But a lot of times I'll say, like, hey, here's a thing I've been thinking about. Here's a story that illustrates that point. And I'll tie those things together. That's not quite the same as a memoir. That'd be more like a personal essay. And so anyway, all of these things are like what's swirling around in my head is like, where does this project land and where we come to with confessions? That's kind of interesting is that it's personal, but it's not, uh, it's not like self, it's not self-important. It's not self-building up. It is, you know, a confession and a lot of confessions you know people who like it could be okay so a lot of people will like get out of jail and they'll write their book about like what they did you know that's that's a more modern form of like confessional mm-hmm. books and a lot of the the reasons so that you're gonna go to jail is what you're telling me. <laughs> exactly so to the, write this book the reasons that people would do that. Is to either set the story straight, like, hey, here's what you guys have heard, but I'm I'm actually going to tell you the truth. It may be to tell their side of the story. It may be just to like fess up to what they did, so on and so forth. Augustine did that in his confessions. He talked, it was a lot about like, here are the sins that I've committed, and here are my personal. Uh, failings of belief and so the confession is different than the memoir because it's not like hey look here here's so much look at all the meaning that's in my life it's it's more of a I I mess some things up and here is here is what I'd like to say about it you know here's what I've taken from it I don't know if that makes any sense at all I'm still like kind of delineating these in my in my own mind well yeah i think if
0: while you're thinking about it i think from what i can remember of confessions for some reason hearing you say this sparked it because i've read the intro of confessions so many times and not actually finished the whole book um augustine was essentially like just a believer but he was smart because of his upbringing And he was being nominated by this local, like, religious leader to, like, a higher place of authority in the church. And I think he was really against it. Like, he did not want this position. But essentially, like, this other, I don't know what, you know, this was before, like, the Catholic Church, but when they still use that kind of, like, Catholic hierarchy yeah so i forget the exact like position he was being taken into but this other religious leader essentially got everyone else in the area to really like augustine and the way that i think from what i can remember the book the book pretty much said like pretty plainly if enough of the people around were like hey you're gonna lead us like that was it like you're going to lead them it was almost like this responsibility because the populace chose you to lead them um even though Augustine was very against it. But once he got into that position, there were people who were antagonistic of his past. And so uh, very much like the second act of Hamilton, where Hamilton writes the Reynolds pamphlet of like, well, if you're going to dig up stuff about my past to slander me, I'm going to beat you to it. Right. And slander myself. Um. So that's kind of what confessions is. But of course, I think Augustine also threw in some things that he like learned. Um, but it's, it's just, hey, when I was in my 20s, I was living with someone and we slept together and they were kind of like my significant other. And I really regret setting them away and treating them harshly, especially because they had my son. But that's what we were all doing during this time. And um, I wish I could go back and do this differently and do that differently. But. Then I learned this and I learned that throughout the way. And it's really interesting. Yeah. My brain, I'm having a brain blast where I remember
1: what the confessions are. Yeah. He, he, um, I think there was criticism of him for getting put in, put into that position. But also I think it had a lot to do with like how quickly, like he was kind of fast tracked to that leadership position compared to what was conventional. And yeah, I think that was part of his motivation is, Hey, let me set the record straight. Let me, let me tell you, like you said, like I'm kind of telling my story before I'm defining my story before you guys can define it for me. And I also think when you like bring it back to the word confessions, I think it's also like, lowering yourself a little bit like, Hey, I got put into Mm. this position. Yes. And maybe I'm being criticized for that rightly, but like, I'm confessing these things to you. I'm not standing up here. Like I'm not, I'm not eager to rule over you all. I'm reluctant sort of thing. So it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting format. Uh, I'm I'm swirling it all around in my head because I don't want to do, I don't want to pick sort of a format for the wrong reason. And I think that if I, okay, I'm going to use a lot of double negatives here, so people stick with me, but I wouldn't want to not do a memoir just because I know that people hate on it. And I also wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't not want to do like a researched book just because I feel like, you know, inadequate to say the points. I don't think those are good reasons to avoid either of those things. And even just like culturally, I think that people are, people can be very like soft communicators right now where. You've realized like Mm. maybe it's not good to be super dogmatic about everything, but then you just go in the complete opposite direction where you can't even state your opinion. You know, so I don't I don't want to end up in any particular like genre for the wrong reason. But when it comes to a confession. I think what would be interesting and what I would be confessing is not any like, you know, personal thing I've done. But confessing, hey, here's the principle that I lived under, here's what I thought character was, by the way, I think it's what a lot of us thought, and I'm realizing that that wasn't right, but maybe there's something better. Like, that's how it even becomes a confession, is I would be like confessing the principle. And maybe, just maybe all of this is just like the mental gymnastics I need to do in my own head just to get it out. And by the time people read the book, they'll like not think twice about what format it is, but I just kind of need to, for myself, like figure out what, not only what am I saying, but like on what grounds am I saying it? That's, that's sort of the struggle yeah. I'm having. I know. Well, yeah, cause I think, yeah, go ahead. Most likely probably like,
0: I think at least 75% of your readers aren't going to think about the format of the book. Right. They might feel it. Maybe. You might get some perceptive readers who feel something if you're not being consistent with it. But that being said, you can't – it's way harder to write a book haphazardly or without like a guiding direction Um, like once you get that track of what exactly is this book's format, I feel like then it's easier to write.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Different people write differently. And there are some people who there are some people who just like it freely comes out of them. But those people might need a lot more editing and a lot more revision and they might need to, you know, like I've got people in my class who like you'll read the first draft of something And then you'll read the second draft of something and it's a completely different paper, but it just comes out like they can just sit down and write. And then on the other extreme is more where I fall and, you know, plenty of other people too, where. It is like a struggle for me to get something out, but once I get something out, it's like kind of 80% good, you know, like my first drafts are not done. They still need a lot of work and revision, but it's kind of like gonna be recognizable to what the end product is and so since this is like a book and it's a longer it's a much bigger project than any writing project i've done before i think that's why i'm like struggling so much for traction uh and at a certain point i will need to just sit down and start writing but at the same time i know this about myself that like i kind of need to I need to figure it out in my head somewhat before I like what I'm what I'm struggling with is okay. I'm not like freaking out about it.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. I think that makes sense, though. Like the idea of sorry, there is a helicopter that is flying like two feet from my house (laughs) right now. I can't hear it. I'm looking at my sound waves and I can see it. Really? (laughs) Um, So you're welcome, listeners. There's a little ear massage, a little inner ear massage for you. Um, but I think the idea of you're confessing your interpretations of character. Or maybe even it, it feels very 1984. Where you're kind of like acknowledging. Hey, I readily believe this is what character is. And then I started to become wear- aware of of like my own changing thoughts of what character was. um, But I think with taking that posture though, you're not, you're not saying that this is what other people think character should be. So if you want, I don't know if that's what you're trying to do in the book, but
1: well, I think that. I think that maybe, and maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but I think that I'm almost, Getting to, I can almost have it both ways in a way that I'm comfortable with because I am going to say, Hey, here's what I thought character was. So that in that way it is personal to me, but I'm only saying it because I think it's like a collective experience, you know? Like I can tell it through the lens Mm -hmm. of my story, but there's no point. That's that would be a memoir is like me telling my story and it's more about me than about anybody else um but i think you're right in that any solutions i give i'm not trying to say i'm the expert on this and here's what you should believe too you know obviously i think i wouldn't be writing about any of this stuff if i didn't think people could take it and i would hope that they they would take it if it helps them but i'm definitely yeah not trying to position myself as like the expert on on it so yeah i think that i think that doing it this way as like a personal confession is potentially a nice m- middle ground like having it both ways is maybe a bad way to frame it but it like it it kind of straddles the line that i want to straddle well so yeah we'll see um And I I thought it was interesting, too. So I was saying, like, that that people kind of turned on memoirs. And then as soon as you as soon as you see it once, you can't unsee it and you like apply that same hatred to like every type of anything that's remotely personal. That kind of reminded me of what you were saying with double binds in the sense of. Like, now that you know what a double bind is, I can totally imagine a person who, like, anytime somebody just slips up their words just a little bit and there's a little bit of contradiction, you can totally imagine the person who's like, hey, well, that's a double bind and, like, you're manipulating me right now. And it's kind of like. uh, It's like gaslighting when gaslighting was pop culture, like. Six months ago. Yeah, well, we kind of we kind of we learn what these what these terms and phrases are and what their criticisms are and then we just like really snap to apply it to every single thing that could potentially be construed at that as that Mm -hmm. you know like people uh people with the double bind thing people make contradictions all the time like humans we just don't speak very well. Like none of us do. We aren't very precise. We aren't whatever. And um, I think you mean we don't speak very good. <laughs> exactly. Embarrassing. You did embarrass me by uh <laughs> switching it up to Augustine. I called him Augustine, like a like a loser. Well,
0: I, I wouldn't based on last week. Okay, so I'm going out to eat yesterday. Hold on. Pause the whole podcast. I'm going out to eat yesterday with my family. A time for solidarity and warm and close feelings with those who I, whom I hold dearest. And they all get on the let's make fun of Rich for not being able to pronounce things <laughs> bandwagon. Because I couldn't say an- um, anonymity. I couldn't say anonymity. There it is. I was saying last podcast, I was saying an amenity, which I think sounds nicer, but that's not how words work. So I saying all that to say, don't go by me. Don't go by my pronunciation guide for Augustine. It could be
1: Augustine. Um, I think that I just kind of say things how I say them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Augustine is more of like the. I don't know if it would be more like the more Anglo way of saying it like the city, we call it St. Augustine, but I know that people who are smart always say Augustine. And so I'm assuming that that just like, it's one of those weird things that shifted over time. And now it is almost more distracting to say it the right way than to say it the wrong way. Uh, so I don't know. We'll figure it out. But yeah, with, with anonymity, I, We were recording that episode really early in the morning, and so I made – I opened up my mouth to kind of like correct you slash tease you about it, and I was so tired that I was like, am I just about to be a jerk right now? So I just didn't say anything. You should have been the jerk.
0: (laughs) But here's the thing. I, I am readily aware of the fact that I say words wrong. And also the fact that I've gone to school for long enough that I like to try to say big words to sound smart, but then I say them wrong or I use words that don't fit into the context I'm using them. And if you hear me saying it, anyone, I give you permission to tell me you're using that word wrong because I will appreciate the knowledge you've given me and the potential embarrassment you've saved me from using a word incorrectly. So please help me. Help me not be stupid. Well, that's the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. You can find this and all of our episodes at our Substack, which is coming along nicely. And... If you're looking for something to read, maybe a nice little 5-10 minute read, some poetry, maybe even some music, you can find all of Tim's stuff at nisley.substack.com. He writes weekly. It's great. I know I'm biased, but you guys really love it. And we hope you guys will join us on the next episode.